Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We're in Galatians. And uh, very easy to do a review of the previous two messages because... I don't think Paul was ever more focused in any of his letters on one single point like he is in Galatians on the subject of freedom. Galatia was a region in the Roman Empire inhabited mostly by Gentiles. And in this region were cities with churches that were founded and encouraged by Paul on his missionary travels, most famously uh, that we see them referred to in Acts several times, the churches in Derbe, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. And after receiving the word by faith and receiving the Holy Spirit and seeing and continuing to experience miracles in their midst, they are visited by the Judaizers. These are Jewish believers who insist that salvation is for the Jews and Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Uh, Therefore, since the Galatians have believed in the Jewish Messiah and received Jewish salvation, they need to become Jewish. Specifically, they need to be circumcised. If you want to be one of his, you got to be one of us, is what they're saying. And Paul is writing to them. And And his passion and his frustration come through loud and clear. I think the core of his message is in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? There's a short story, short story, short story by Tolstoy. There's a tongue twister. Short story by Tolstoy. Say that three times fast. A short story by Leo Tolstoy. Yes, that Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace, Anna Karenina. This, This story is called The Three Hermits. And it tells the the story of a priest who is traveling on a ship with some pilgrims from one place to another. And as they pass by this island, the priest asks the the ship's captain what he knows about the inhabitants of the island. And the captain says, well, there are three old monks that live like hermits there. They live very simply, and they simply pray and seek the salvation of their souls. Uh, And uh, the priest says, well, I really desire to stop there. I would like to meet them and check on them. So... They make a pit stop there, and uh, the priest goes on a landing craft and visits these hermits, and he talks to them and asks them what they do, and they say, oh, we don't do anything. We don't, we don't have a lot of knowledge here. We just, we just pray very simply. He says, well, you, you, so you do pray. Oh, yes, we pray. What do you pray? And they say, well, our, our prayer is very simple. Uh, we are three. You are three. Have mercy on us. You three have mercy on us three. So they grasp the concept of the Trinity. But the priest wasn't satisfied with this. He says, no, when you pray, you must pray like this. And he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, or the Our Father, as it's referred to in this story. And he spends hours teaching them to memorize the Lord's Prayer because they don't have Bibles and they can't read. Uh, you know, they're illiterate, so he teaches them to just simply memorize it. So he teaches them, and they get it, and they're very thankful, they're very grateful, and the priest feels very, very gratified that he's had the opportunity to share the, the, way, of the way of truth more fully with some simple believers. 
it's getting very late. The sun is setting. He takes the launch back to the ship, and the ship continues on its journey. And then after, uh, when night falls and it's dark, the priest notices a glow on the horizon from the direction of this island. And he, as he continues to look, this glow is getting brighter, and it's coming closer to the ship. And as it becomes very near, it's immediately apparent to the priest and the others on the ship that it's the hermits running on the water, chasing after the ship. And when they reached the ship, they said, Oh, man of God, we are so sorry. While we were learning it and while we were still praying it, we remembered, but we ceased praying it for an hour and have forgotten the whole thing. Will you please teach it to us again? And the priest says, Acceptable to God is your prayer. You pray for us. These priests had something in their simple faith that didn't make it anything for them to walk on the water. It's like, what could the priest really add to that? Now, it's just a story. It's just an illustration. Of course, there is value in going deep in the Word of God. We need teachers. That's why God gave us teachers. But what Paul is saying is, what did you lack when I presented you this gospel? You received it, and you received the Holy Spirit. Your lives were changed. You were walking in freedom. You were experiencing miracles. What really did you expect to have added to you by receiving the law from the Judaizers who could never keep the law before Christ in the first place? There was nothing they could have expected to add to the cross. So he goes on to draw this very important distinction between slaves and sons. I like the direction that praise and worship went this morning because it talked a lot about our identity in Christ. And uh, Paul uh, spends a better part of a chapter talking about works of the law, the works of flesh versus receiving the promise. And he talks a lot about Isaac and Ishmael, the two sons of Abraham, how God had promised to give Abraham and Sarah a son. This was a promise, even though they were aged. Even in the day when people lived long, they were considered past the age of childbearing. Uh, And so Abraham, trying to make the promise come true, trying to do his part, because after all, God helps those who help themselves, right? You know that's not in the Bible, right? Anyway, he takes it into his own hands, and they decide, well, I'll have a son by by Hagar, Sarah's maid. And they do, and God makes it clear, no, that was your work. You're not going to inherit the promise by what you do. It's going to come from me, and Sarah will bear your son. And so Paul says, see, Ishmael represents the works of the flesh, the works of the law. Isaac represents the promise and receiving by faith, and this is who we are to model our faith after, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't get there. We don't add anything to the finished work of God by our human effort. Let's read this part again, beginning in chapter 5. Very important passage, and it's part of what was on this video. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace, for we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Then he goes uh, for a few verses. He's 
starts railing almost profanely against the Judaizers and their precious circumcision. Then he talks about the difference in how we live. The language he uses is important. This is still review from last week because he talks about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. It's not the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit, and it's not the works of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit, but the works of the flesh, our efforts, the things that will that are the outworking of our sin nature, our flesh, because how many of you know as long as we are in this body, our bodies will be tempted. Our flesh will be tempted towards sin. Our spirits are drawn to God. The battle is won in the mind, the interface between spirit and body. What we sow into thought-wise, meditation-wise, energy-wise is what, is what we are going to give the victory to in our lives. Uh, but he talks about how the outworking of, the, of the, the deeds of the flesh, and he lists them, and he says, verses, this is the fruit of the spirit. This is what comes out of your spirit man. This is what you are by nature a child of God. And if you allow that nature to rule you, what you will see in your life are the, is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then, uh, in fact, let's just read the, I think, 522. Yeah, I just read that part. Uh, verse 24, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. That's where we left off last week. Let's read verse 26 now and read on. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Now, there's a lot in there we're going to look at. I'm going to give you a couple of stories as illustrations. But let's start with verse 26, when it says, Let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. There's a huge danger there because if we are, this is precisely where the Judaizers were. They came in in this spirit of conceit and pride and uh, this, I think, a, a condescension. Oh, you Gentiles, we are so glad you have finally come to the faith that we have owned for these thousands of years. You know, we are God's people originally, and we're so great that God himself has condescended to invite you into this relationship that was always ours. Uh, so if you really want the fullness of this thing, you need to be circumcised like us. It's the spirit of conceit. And what does this do? It's going to provoke people to envy. And this is not the right reaction. This is not what we should be doing. We shouldn't be looking and holding ourselves up and parading our self-righteousness around. Uh, if we, yeah, well, make more of the word provoke, but I'm going to hang on to that right now and make sure I get some of this uh, other stuff in. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, it's not talking about somebody who comes up and shares, hey, let me, let, I just want to get this off my chest. I kind of struggle in an area. That's somebody being frank. It's somebody being honest. That's not being overtaken in a trespass. Being overtaken in a trespass is getting caught. It's getting caught red-handed, being, I mean, just 
the, the adulterous woman is a great example of someone overtaken in a trespass. Lord, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. The scriptures say to stone her, what do you say? So it says if somebody is caught or uh, over, overtaken in a trespass, our job is what? Restoration. You who are spiritual, restore such a one. Uh, that word restore, when it's used in Matthew uh, it's the same word as mend when it says with, and they were mending their nets. It was, uh, it, that's what it was. In secular Greek, the word was used in uh, the setting of bones, a setting of broken bones. Uh, so it's all about restoration and healing. And uh, in, ref- in reference to uh, verse 26 above there, our gentleness, when it says... Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That's, that gentleness comes from a lack of conceit. And here's where I want to give you a couple of illustrations because this it is a very, very important passage. When we are called to do life together as a local church, as the body of Christ, if we really are, if it's more than just showing up on Sundays and some of you on Wednesdays, uh, if, it's, if, if, if that's all it is, we don't have to do any of the messy stuff. But if we're actually going to know one another, bless one another, bear one another's burdens, there's going to be times when we are going to be dealing with the sin of brothers and sisters, right? Uh, and to do this wrong is going to cause hurt, it's going to cause offense, and there's a lot, you know, we, maybe we need to have David Husky in again and talk about offense because uh, he's got some great insight. And I think many of us have maybe forgotten some important truths about how offense is very much the responsibility of the offended. You can choose to take it or you can choose to not take it. On the other hand, this passage really is putting a lot of the onus on the potential offender. So we've got to do this right. And th- I'm going to tell you a story, and this is... Uh, it's, it's really unfortunate because, to, to me, it just really looks ugly. There's a, there's a guy, and I won't name him, but even if I did, it wouldn't be. This is a guy who has shared this story very publicly uh, and fairly recently. But I'm still not going to name him because it's not what this is about. He was, a, he was an extremely well-known, certainly a nationally known, possibly internationally known uh, man with a phenomenal youth ministry. This guy hosted conferences and published uh, works and curriculum and stuff uh, was a tremendous success and a blessing as a minister. And because of his uh, very high profile, he did a lot of traveling. And uh, somewhere along the line, uh, he was busted. He made some suggestion to a woman at the airport or at a hotel. Uh, and it turned out this woman was actually on staff at the church he was going to be speaking at the next day. And then it exposed him as a serial philanderer, that this is something he was doing all over the country. He was, a, uh, an, uh, he was addicted to pornography for a long time, and this had just begun to work out in the form of unfaithfulness to his, to his wife and to his family. It cost him his marriage. It cost him his family. It cost him his ministry. And uh, in fact, he, he wrote a book that I think the title of the book was A Dollar Amount, and this dollar amount represented what his sin had cost him in terms of income, in terms of uh, everything he had to pay through the divorce and everything else. He's been very, very frank and open about what happened and now has a very effective ministry, a ministry that has helped thousands of men out of uh, sex, sex addiction, sexual sin, and, por- and addiction to pornography. 
And he does this by being very frank and open about his own story. And when he, uh, he published a book sometime in the last couple years about this and, you know, does like people do these days when they promote it on social media, and another minister, another well-known minister with an international reach, uh, not, he's not international in terms of world famous, but he does a lot of traveling, and he's well-known in, 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 in a lot of the same circles as this other guy. He begins to post... At one after another, I mean every 15, 20 minutes, a post about how offended he is by people who have sinned and are still in the pulpit. What does anybody who has, uh, somebody who uh, lost their family because of a sex addiction, sex addiction has nothing to teach me. Uh, you, you didn't overcome this. Uh, you were, uh, no, no, back up. I don't want, have anything to learn about family about marriage from somebody who lost his marriage. And one thing, all these very, now he never named the guy, but everybody knew who he was talking about. And every time somebody would say, most people were very, very supportive of these, what I considered very confrontational and mean posts. But every now and then someone would say, hey brother, everybody knows who you're talking to. Why don't you dial it down? Because this is still another brother you're talking about. And he would come back and say, I'm not talking about anybody in particular. I'm just speaking generally. Well, that was, that was, disingenuous to say the least then he finally said this he said you want to teach me about repentance you didn't repent you just got caught and that's when i weighed in and i made my one contribution to the entire conversation which was lengthy and i simply said brother i love you man but those two things are not mutually exclusive and you say, you didn't repent, you got caught. Uh, you got caught, and then you repented. This is exactly what, exactly what Paul's talking about here. If one is overtaken in a sin, this is somebody who gets caught. You restore them. Well, how can there be restoration if they don't repent? But the fact is, I believe God in his mercy arranges it so we get caught before we get too far down that road, because how many of you know Paul talked about somebody, they can, uh, if, if they don't die, Paul talks about, I turned them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, meaning if they survive long enough, they're going to travel so far down this path of sin that they will eventually abandon the faith entirely. They will renounce Christ. It's better that they die before they get there. Certainly better if you get caught and confronted and repent before you die. So I believe God puts situations and people in our lives to expose these things so they can be repented of, so they can restore, not to shame or pillory these people. You who are spiritual, confront such a one. You who are spiritual, rebuke such a one. You who are spiritual, restore such a one, and you better do it in a spirit of gentleness. Why? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. First Corinthians ten one, uh, sorry ten twelve says, "Let him who stands take heed lest he fall." There's another story. Uh, this was a good good friend of mine, uh, one of my best friends, actually visited me when I was living and working down in Alabama, and we took a road trip. And uh, on the way, we were we were 
talking and kind of commiserating about a a high-profile minister whose marriage had fallen apart due to infidelity. And uh, then we were talking about people we knew in our lives whose families and marriages had been damaged by infidelity. And he told me, and this was a guy who he'd probably been married, I think it probably would have been seven years at this point, and had one of the strongest marriages. Still does, by the way, just a truly great marriage. Deeply in love with one another, both of them deeply in love with Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, at the time, you know, I, I was an unmarried guy, and, but he was one of a handful of people who I would look at and say, this, this is the kind of marriage I want. You know, this is a rock-solid marriage. And he was telling me how, in discussing these things, he had spoken with his wife about this, you know, about what a tragedy this was and how hard it had to have been. And he said, I asked my wife, I said, what would you do if you ever found out I was cheating on you? And she said, I would be hurt. Obviously, I'd be devastated, but I would forgive you. And he said, I know you'd forgive me. You're a Christian. You have to forgive me. My question is, would you stay with me? And she said, yeah, I would. It would be very difficult, but I like to think that I would. And then she asked him, and he said, well, I'd forgive you too, but I don't think I could stay with you because I don't think I could ever forget it. I just don't think I could put it out of my mind. Now, this was just him talking. The next thing out of his mouth is what has stuck with me all these years. He went quiet for a second, and he shook his head, and he said, man, I hope I never cheat on my wife. And that struck me because I think nine out of ten people contemplating a situation like that would say, man, I hope my spouse never cheats on me. I thought there was something incredibly humble about starting with himself. I hope I never do anything that hurts my wife that bad because it also recognizes that that possibility exists. I have said for years that the man or woman who thinks that he or she is above being tempted by any particular sin is in the greatest danger of falling into that sin. And here's the reason. If I think, it doesn't matter. I I mean, I love my wife so much, and I can't imagine ever being attracted to anybody else. So it doesn't matter who I'm with. It doesn't matter what circumstances I'm in. A person who thinks they are beyond temptation in any arena will expose themselves to temptation. They won't be careful about this. But the person who is aware of their limitations, aware of the power that the flesh has and how quickly our hearts can be turned, will take steps, take measures to protect themselves from these things. But it has to start with humility. If I come in, and and this is why I cringe when I see people, we do need strong voices. We don't want to be wimpy about sin. We don't want to say, oh, that's okay, because it's not. We still need to call sin, sin. But when you're dealing with a brother or dealing with a sister, and you, you try to deal with it by talking about how I've never done that. And this, this is what really kind of bugged me about this guy. It kind of, it had the taste to me, because I know both of these guys. It just had the feeling or sense to me that this guy was like, it really bothers me that this guy has the platform he has, while my platform kind of remains down here. I should have a higher profile because I have lived a purer life. And that's just getting in such a danger. It gets, to me, it gets so dangerously close to judging yourself compared to somebody else, which is the very next thing Paul warns against. 
when he says, yeah, verse 3, if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Now when we see this, bearing one another's burdens, or sorry, it says earlier, bear, bear one another's burdens, and then it says uh, each one shall bear his own load. That's people, so what? right there in the same passage, it's contradicting itself. No, it's not. It's only contradictory if you're reading these two statements isolated from their context and certainly their context to each other. When it's talking, uh, bear one another's burdens, it's talking about restoring somebody in your midst who needs restored. When it talks about bearing your own load, what it simply means, look at it, is you are not going to be judged by how much better you did than somebody else. You can, you, can, you can hide some sin or you can minimize sin in your life. You say, well, I got this issue, but it's, you know, I'm working on it. I don't feel like it's a besetting sin. And then we feel, perversely, we kind of feel good when we come across somebody who really messes up. Because then we can say, well, what we're really saying is, I thank the Lord that I am not like this man. Like the old, uh, you know, the Pharisee did in the presence of the publican. I thank thee, Lord, that I am not like this man. In other words, wow, boy, just when I thought I might have had some improving to do, I come across this person who was really overtaken in this sin. And you kind of wink at God and say, huh, huh? And God's like, don't you worry about that. You're only, the only thing you ought to have to do with that guy's sin is restoring him. You look to yourself and only to yourself and you compare yourself to me, to my word, to my standard, to my call and my giftings in your life because that's the only thing you're going to be judged by. You are not going to stand before God while he says, I gave you giftings, I gave you a calling, and I gave you a standard. Here's what I expected of you. You missed it by this much, but you know what? You did better than this guy, so well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's not how it's going to be at all. Each one shall bear his own load. That ought to once again cause us to respond to this whole passage with repentance and humility. Now, let's move on because I kind of want to get through the rest of this. Let him, verse 6, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Uh, I'm going to stop there yet. For he who sows to, the, to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary, weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us, good, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Uh, quickly here, he starts off talking about, he's talking about giving. In verse 6, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. That's you being taught the word, sharing with me. That's you giving of your tithes and offerings to support the work of this ministry, and part of the work of this ministry is to pay the pastor's salary. That's, that's one way to break this down, okay? This, and this is just one of, of several passages Paul uses to, to uh, uh, defend the practice of those who 
preaching, preach the gospel, making their living by the gospel. He doesn't stop there, though. You know, share all good things with those, with those who teach, and then goes on to talk about sowing and reaping in general. It's interesting that he uses that uh, about sowing and reaping to tie two different things together. He starts with giving. He starts with blessing, being a, a financial blessing or a supporter uh, of those who share the word with you. And then he's talking about what we, where we kind of started with this, which is what are you going to give your attention to? Because your flesh is drawn toward the things of, of the flesh, things of the world. It's going, there are sinful temptations that always come at you in the realm of the flesh. And your spirit is drawn to God because you have a new created spirit that is sinless. And, that, uh, and, and the question is, what are you going to walk after? You're going to walk after the spirit, you're going to walk after the flesh. Well, what are you sowing to? What are you sowing to? He starts by talking about giving, sharing with those who share the word with you, and then says, God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he'll reap. So he's connecting it to that. Say, look, uh, do you want to receive a blessing from God? He's already covered this extensively as we read in uh, 2 Corinthians when he taught this great passage on giving and receiving, right? And then... Uh, he's talking here, so he, so he just kind of mentions the thing about giving those who, who support, sharing with those who support you. God is not mocked. As a man sows, so shall he reap. You want to you reap sparingly, then give sparingly. You want to reap bountifully, then sow bountifully. But it's not just about what you're sharing with those who teach the word. It's also about what are you sowing into your own life. If you sow after the flesh, you'll reap corruption. What does that mean? If you take what God has given you, and not just your money, but again, your time, your energy, your thoughts, your resources into satisfying your appetites, satisfying your fleshly desires. What's going to happen as a result? You're going to suffer in your body as a result of that. When we simply indulge every whim, when we indulge every desire the flesh presents before us, it will invariably cause us problems. And many of these problems are health problems, right? So what do we do? We buffet the flesh. We keep it under. But if we sow to the Spirit, we will, of the Spirit, reap everlasting life. And it's not just talking. This, this is not salvation by works. Good night of all the books in the Bible. Uh, we can certainly realize Paul's not talking about salvation by works here. He's just talking that this, these will produce blessings that will last into eternal life that we get a taste of eternal life here that's going to continue in true eternity. Now, maybe the hardest part about this is verse 9, when it says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. This is where, you know, by faith and patience, we inherit the promises of God. And the patience can be the hardest part. And this is why this part of an ongoing conversation I'm having, I've had with Jenny over the past several months, as uh, we get excited about seeing her pop up out of that wheelchair. And I believe it's going to be a suddenly. But man, it's been a long time. But by faith and patience, don't grow weary in doing good. In due time. The timing, let's face it, Probably every one of us, if we've been on any kind of faith adventure, anything we've been believing God for, sometimes the hardest thing to fathom, the hardest thing to get about the whole process is why not now? Now, most people 
can say, once they have come out of that, once they emerge victorious from that struggle, once the manifestation is there, they can look back and say one of two things. One could be, I now see why that time in the wilderness was good for me. I learned this from that time. Here's why it was better that it lasted, that it took me a week. Here's why it's better than it, t- than it took me a year. Uh, and other t- or they'll say this, and I've kind of been in both situations. One, uh, I, I'm actually more likely to say, I don't know why it took that long. But now that I'm here, I don't care. Once I receive the manifestation, it's not like I'm going to turn around and say, thanks for making me wait five years, God. Why couldn't you have healed me three months ago, God? I'm just glad to be healed now. All right? One of these mysteries that I believe we'll possibly learn about in heaven. I'm kind of back and forth on that too. I think we have all these questions. Why didn't this happen? Why did this happen? Blah, blah, blah. And maybe when we get to heaven, it's going to be like, let me show you how I did this or why I did this. I kind of think it's going to be like that. And other times I think when we get into heaven, everything about this world is just going to fade away so quickly. It's like, yeah, never mind that. Let's just, let's just, we are in the manifest presence of God. Let's just enjoy this, right? Meanwhile, patience. Don't grow weary in doing good. When I think about the suddenlies, when I think about the wait, I always get this picture of a guy who's trudging along, struggling along, being faithful, speaking the word, expecting, I'm believing, I'm believing, and then and I, here's a corner. This is a building, and he, he can't see what's on the other side. He just knows, I can't go one more step. And he gives up, grows weary, and turns around. But if he'd just gotten around the corner, there was the manifestation. There was the answer waiting on him. Can you hold on for one more day? Can you speak the word over yourself for one more hour? Don't grow weary because you will reap in due season. (sighs) Now, verse 10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. I love this verse. It, it, it can sound a little bit elitist, but I still like it. Listen, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. This is why I believe in giving to even secular organizations that are meeting a need that there might not be a Christian organization dealing with right now. If, the, uh, if there's a food bank or, or a food uh, uh, a soup kitchen or something like that that is feeding the homeless or feeding the hungry in a way that I can't. I want to support that. I believe in human dignity. I believe in, in providing basic living essentials for everybody. But I always look for a Christian organization that's doing it first. Okay, because number one, what is the point of meeting these immediate needs of the body without meeting the deeper need of the soul? I want people to hear the word. I want people to receive Jesus, not just food, clothing, and shelter, Right? But also because, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. What's this tell me? It tells me that my first responsibility is to the family. Okay? If I only have so much to go around, my first... And this is, and this is what we tell people, by the way, because we still get these calls. We still get people stopping in. They want... They, they, they used to always come in. I've shared this with you before. We get people that were, were, were visible from the highway, so they come in, and they make the rounds. They go to different churches, and they're not all scammers. They're not, but a lot of them are. We've found them out. We've, we've done our research, and we're trying to be good stewards with our money, right? God's money. And, but they'll come in, and he used to ask for, can I have $25 for gas? Uh, can I have $10 for a meal? 
And there's a, there's a way. We have the Good Samaritan Fund. It's what the offering that we take at our community Thanksgiving service funds that so that we don't just have to say no. But we do make sure we get there, make sure they're not wanted by the police, things like this. Uh, but now we get calls saying, will you pay my rent? Will you buy me? We get a lot of requests for hotel rooms. You know, I'm, I'm, and so I'll, usually well, I'm down here for a medical procedure, but I don't have a place to stay. Uh, can you put me up in a hotel for a week and things like this? And we just can't answer all these. You know, people call, you know, I'm behind on my heating bill. Can you pay my heating bill? And these are people that don't belong to any church. And part of me just kind of was just, I, I, I do ask them, do you belong to a church? You know, what is, what is it that, and, and I get it. The, the, their picture is, well, these are churches. There's, these are people who are supposed to love and help people. And yet, on the other hand, I, I, I got to admit, something, and it's probably something ugly, rises in me and say, why do you, why do you, why do you only ever think about what a church can do for you? Why aren't you part of doing for others in a church? Why aren't you part of a church body? You know, we have a benevolence fund in this church for people in this church. And if you've got a need that you can't see a way to meet, I hope you know that. Contact us. You're who it's there for. But we can't, our benevolence fund at Living Word cannot pay the water bill of, uh, of, of every poor person in Champaign County. All right, our first responsibility is the household of faith. And as the Lord leads, we'll do good in other ways, but our first responsibility is to you. Now, quickly, quickly, verse 11. We talked about this last week. See, or maybe, the, you know, remember when Paul was talking about it, it was because of a, uh, a physical infirmity that I first preached the gospel to you. This was the other verse that people point to and say, see, problem was Paul had bad eyes. In verse 11, it says, see with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. And I'll tell you, I'm personally convinced that has nothing to do with an eye problem. Doesn't matter. I'm just thinking, you look at the tone of this letter and the, the, again, the passion, even the frustration. And I think it's like, this is Paul using all caps, bold font, that sort of thing, right? See with what large letters I've written you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, they know that you being circumcised isn't going to help you keep the law because they were circumcised and it didn't help them keep the law. They just know things will go a lot easier. It'll make them look better if they come in and, and claim you as proselytes to Judaism, even though you've already been saved. They don't have your best interest at heart, just their own. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And here we go again. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. He's kind of back to his original point here. Earlier on he said circumcision and uncircumcision avail nothing but faith working through love. Here he says circumcision and uncircum- nor, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avail anything but a new creation. This is a beautiful way of distilling everything he has said into one statement. You cannot be saved by your own righteousness, by your own good works. You cannot be saved by keeping the law and circumcision adds nothing to the finished work of the cross. 
what everybody needs is not to be better and not to be outwardly changed so that we can conform to some external law. What we need is renewal. Our problem is not that we're bad. Our problem is that we are dead. Our problem is we need a new spirit, one that is not death, uh, that is not in the death that is there because of separation from God. And the, the cross of Christ, the blood he shed, his finished work is what reconciles us to the Father again. We were created for fellowship with God, and it is the sin nature we inherited from our first father, Adam, that has infected us, that has produced an outworking of sin, and that sin has separated us from God. There is nothing we can do to undo that. We can try and try and try, and some do better than others to stop sinning, but we can't take care of the sin nature. Circumcision doesn't do that. But God offers us this, a new creation, a new heart, a heart of flesh. Do you have that? No association with any church, religion, pastor, organization, nothing can make you right with God. And everybody needs to be made right with God. You can't make yourself right with God. Not with vows, not with sacrifices, not with beating yourself up. Jesus is the only one that can make us right with God, and the only way he could do that was to take everything that was wrong with you, everything that was wrong with all of us, and take that wrongness in his own flesh. Does God judge sin, or is God merciful? He judges sin, but he judged it in Jesus Christ so that he can be merciful to us. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.